Welcome in, everybody. We have a special Monday night edition of State of the Family Courts. I am your host, Mark Real. I'm a, a Southern California family law attorney. And joining us, our first repeat guest on the show, we have Ryan McLaughlin, a Minnesota attorney um, who has, uh, if anybody watched our previous interview, has actually filed with the courts in Minnesota, challenging the constitutionality of some of their family code statutes. So Ryan, thank you for coming back on again. How are we doing tonight? Mark, it's good to be back. <clears throat> I feel like the constitutional elements, as we discussed the first time we chatted, super important, not used as at all as much as they should be. So super interesting episode today. Um, the literature is non-existent really. Um, you could YouTube or Google constitutional law and family law or constitution and family law, and there's virtually nothing out there. There's a few, there's a handful of videos, <clears throat> handful of articles. Um, but interestingly, this is the potential solution, the potential um, bullet or whatever you want to call it to, to, to piercing this seemingly impenetrable and corrupt, depending upon your angle and choice of words, mm -hmm. system that many people are trapped in. They feel like, hey, look, it seems like judges can just do whatever they want and we just suffer endlessly and throw money at attorneys, but what can we do? Uh, and, and I think the Constitution is, is the answer and hopefully we can, we can talk about why. Yeah, awesome. So let's talk about kind of where this this constitutional philosophy sits. So the most public and kind of in the forefront of everyone's mind around changing family law is always enacting better laws through our state legislature. Um, and that's the part that always gets talked about. Last week I had had Brian Vandiver on who spearheaded the, the Arkansas effort to get their 50-50 presumption. But the second piece of that is there is a growing number of individuals, including yourself. Um, I've become a believer, I would say, over the last six to nine months that there are some constitutional challenges that when you look at them on their face are very, very strong challenges to make. Um, so can you, we'll, we'll start out with kind of the, the brief synopsis of the statute you filed, you challenged constitution, uh, the constitutionality of, and kind of where that sits right now. Okay. So I'll, I'll be as quick and as general as possible, but every state, and I'm in Minnesota, so every state has a statute that says if two people split, get divorced, custody, whatever, how do we sort out parenting time? As you mentioned, Arkansas, is that what you said, is now 50-50? Arkansas and Kentucky are the only two 50-50 states. That is awesome. So by default, you split there and both, and it's 50 for mom, 50 for dad. That's yeah, so, Go ahead. Yeah, so so Kentucky is, it's a presumption of 50-50 um, and you have to be on, or by preponderance of the evidence, prove that that's not in the best interest of the child or children. And in Arkansas, it's a 50-50 presumption and it takes clear and convincing evidence to rebut that presumption. That's that, and just for everybody who's listening, the difference between preponderance preponderance is fifty point zero 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 one percent, and clear and convincing is generally recognized as 
85%. So clear and convincing, that's, um, what state did you say was clear and convincing? Arkansas. It Arkansas. actually, today I believe it actually went into effect. That um, is the Arkansas law officially went into effect today. So that is a huge, huge victory for, for parents and for children. Okay, so th those would be the top of the bar. Those are constitution constitutionally A++++. Now, if you have a state like Minnesota, you split, you only have a 25% parenting time presumption, right? So that's all you get um, instead of 50% leading to custody battles, et cetera, et cetera. This is the problem. This statute that says you you are presumed to have 25% minimum parenting time is problematic. It should be 50. Um, and the question is why? Um, and the, the answer is the constitution. And what specifically about the constitution? You know, we have the first amendment, the second amendment, third amendment, the 14th amendment. Um, and it might be useful to read the 14th amendment but it's the due process clause, right? The 14th amendment is long. Um, the last clause says that we have due process of law. And what the Supreme Court has said that to mean is like, look, we've decided as a Supreme Court that parents have a right, they use the word right, to their children. And we've decided as the Supreme Court that you can't take away rights without due process of law. And then we can go into strict scrutiny and what that means. But here, if you have a right, it means, and we're all equals in this country, that's due process of law, equality under the 14th Amendment. It means that parents should have equal, equal time with their children, right? We're entitled to equal protection of the laws equal protection underneath the 14th amendment. Um, so so that's the constitutional claim. And, and I think I'll pause there before going deeper. Mark, is that is that in your eyes, the 30 second nutshell about what's happening? Yeah, I think that, that that's right on there. It's that, that uh, this 25% presumption and you were right on, every single state's slightly different, has different wording, is codified differently. But essentially what we're looking at with the constitutionality, I believe the Supreme Court case calls the right to parent a fundamental liberty interest, I think is the actual phrasing and wording in there. But essentially we need to have the most, uh, well, I guess I won't dive into that too deep right now and we'll go. So next we'll turn to, so in Minnesota, you have each parent has a presumption of 25% custody. Correct. And then that 50% is, kind of up for grabs it's up for grabs and how, how do you get to 50 percent? you have to prove up what's in the best interest of the children using the 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 17 factor completely um uh, uh non-objective completely subjective best interest standard right and this is the problem and this is what people gripe about ad nauseum this is this is the the fundamental problem with family court is that it's using the best interest standard, which is not a standard at all. It's just judge using these factors, make up something and justify it later. And this is the fundamental crux of the, the constitutional problem says the constitution is above everything else, right? So the judges need to rule 
in line with the constitution. Their preferences have to be in line with the constitution, not vice versa. Not, I'm gonna issue a ruling um, and I'm gonna fit the constitution to my preferences because this is what I want for this particular family. And um, I just wanna read this. There's a landmark case and I wanna read just one um, line from this Troxel case. Um, Troxel v. Glanville. Troxel v. Granville. Yes. Granville, this is uh, the the esteemed justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and this is this is great because this gets to the heart of judges can't just do what they want. And Sandra Day O'Connor says this right, writing for the majority. She says, and quote, the due process clause does not permit a state to infringe on the fundamental rights of parents. Right? We all know that the due process clause does not permit a state to infringe on the fundamental right of parents to make child rearing decisions simply because a state judge believes a better decision could be made. This means stay out of people's lives, right? This, this basically erodes any, th there's no constitutional ground on which family court can sit, right? Th I think this is a huge, this statement by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor is a huge statement. And if people wanna fast forward to my, to my end take, it's that every single litigant who's getting less than 50% parenting time should bring this argument because it's going to win eventually. And, and, and the reason it's not winning now is not because it's a bad argument. People are like, well, why isn't it winning now? It's not winning now because not enough people are bringing the argument, right? These things become symbiotic and hopefully if enough people are here scratching their heads, they'll start bringing it. It will gain traction. Um, and there's already huge traction in, in the constitutional space. So bring the argument. Um, forgot where we were going. We, we started with Troxel. Um, so you, 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 read all, you read off the phrase in Troxel. And I want to point out to people, there's always a lot of conversation about, oh, I got to get into federal court. Oh, I got to get into federal court. You're not in federal court. So can you explain the, the route and the mode that, that you're taking? Yes. Um, the Rooker Feldman. So there's a long answer and a short answer. The Give short us the answer, long one. Give us the, the detail. The detailed answer. Okay. So we chose to file a action, a motion in our lowest possible state court. Okay. This is where the, the, my client, um, is litigating presently. We're like, let's do it in state court. Not because we thought state court was favorable and not because we thought the judges were favorable. Um, really, we did it because it was the, <clears throat> the most accessible for me as an attorney. It's the space that I'm most familiar in. Um, we got local media coverage, which was incredibly helpful, right? Because it's a big deal when a little podunk town um, and a little podunk case that nobody hears about challenges the constitution of the United States. It's, 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 it's an event. Um, Federal court, I did not want to have to deal with the Rooker-Feldman doctrine, which is a doctrine that says you are barred from coming to federal court to relitigate an issue that has been before the state court, right? So this is a, this is a doctrine, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, that um, 
that federal court judges use to dispose of, to dismiss, to throw back to state court because they don't want to have to do a, have to deal with state court matters. Um, this doctrine should be defeated because we are not um, rest judicata, right? Once a matter has been decided, it can't be reopened and decided in a different court. The matter has been settled. So for instance, <clears throat> if you have a trial on one issue in your lowest state court, you cannot then transfer venue after the, after the issues have been decided, the dissolution has been filed, the order has been given, you cannot appeal to federal court, right? You have to go to your state appellate court and your state Supreme Court. That's the, the order of operations. Um, the Rooker-Feldman doctrine would not apply and you could sue straight up in federal court if you want to. If you're out there and you're getting screwed and you wanna file a constitutional claim, you could go straight to federal court. There's no bar. Now, that's a contentious claim, and there will almost certainly be a Rooker-Feldman objection um, by the state, so that you should know that, that that doctrine will be your, there will be a motion for summary judgment based on that doctrine. Um, You're also probably going to run into the domestic relations exception, which is essentially another mechanism that federal courts have for kicking back any family law related matter and keeping it out of federal court. That said, I think federal court judges would be more uh, deft and less um, kind of like with their knees in the river of family cases. I think a federal judge would be more academically inclined to think seriously about the constitution. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the forum would be, um, and interestingly, it's not just the Constitution, it's the federal cause of action under 42 USC 1983, otherwise known as a 1983 claim, right, which is a parallel claim to the Constitution. And it might be worthwhile, I'll pull up the text here. The color of law. Yes, the color. We're going of down law. a wormhole tonight. So you can't, you can't operate. Um, let's just read it. It'll, yeah, it'll, go for it. it'll, it'll take 30 seconds. Every person, and that's, that's important, every person who under color of any statute, this is where the color of law comes in, any person who under the color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of any state or territory or the District of Columbia subjects or causes to be subjected any citizen of the United States or person within the jurisdiction thereof, so you don't even need to be a citizen, to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities served by the secured by the Constitution and laws shall be liable to the party injured in an action at law, suit, in equity, or other proper proceeding for redress, except that in any action brought against the judicial officer basically no relief shall be granted. Okay, so this is interesting because it means any person, you don't even need to be a citizen, anywhere in the United States can bring an action under color of law um, for a violation of the Constitution in law or in equity, right? And the difference is a suit in law is a suit for cash dollars, right? Where there's actual damages, where you're saying um, you can prove up receipts, right? Just like a tort claim, you can show receipts for your damages. Action in equity is what family court is, right? It's we're going to order various various relief. 
Um, so you can bring it in either, and you should bring it in both. And so these, the Constitution goes hand in hand with 1983 claims, right? They, they go parallel to each other. Where you see this is in um, police officer uh, cases. You see the constitutional violation, it might be a Fourth Amendment search and seizure combined with, um, that's the Constitution, combined with the civil claim of um, trespass, right? It, it's a civil statute was violated for trespass. Uh, the constitutional claim would be uh, violation of the Fourth Amendment search and seizure as an example. The question is, can we bring these in family court, um, A, regarding the action of judges, B, regarding the action of guardian ad litems or, or, or whatever your guardians are called in your state, can we bring these claims in family court? The answer has to be yes. The answer has to be we have to educate the bar. And I think, Mark, everything you're doing every week is just fantastic in doing this. We have to educate the bar about these claims. Because for some reason, in law school, you take constitutional law and then you never apply it if you're a family law practitioner. You, you study constitution like your life depended on it to go to, the, to pass the bar, but then you never use it again, right? And it's it, it should be a huge head scratcher. And if, if <laughs> there's so many dads and moms out there who are getting screwed and who are saying, God, we have to send our attorney more dollars, more dollars just for more of the same. And the answer to the frustration is to brush up on constitutional law, specifically the 14th Amendment and challenge these state statutes. And it's free. Um, I, wanna, I could get a link to the, to the um, case that I filed, which is now public information. Um, I could get a link to you, Mark. It's on, and uh, never mind where the link is. It's public information. Um, and we're happy to share it. We're happy to go through it. Um, and that might. Do you have it up on your screen? If you want to go through it, I should be able to get you. We can share your screen and we can walk through anything you want to. Yeah. If you want to do that, let's do it. So if you have it pulled up on your screen, um, you should see down in the middle, there's a share button and you can hit share screen and you'll be able to click on the window you want to share. It'll push us off to the side and pull up your document. All right, give me two seconds. But yeah, so I mean, I, I think, and while, while he's doing this, I'll kind of uh, summarize the constitutional argument. The constitutional argument is in a state like Minnesota that has 25% and you have to work your way up to 50% or 75%, the constitutional argument would be anything less than 50% is unconstitutional and it should start there and then you have to work from that. All right. So you ready for it to be added to the stream? Um, no, I got your full. Yeah, I don't know. Here, hold on. I figured it out again. I'll figure it out. Keep going. Yeah. So anything less than a, than a state having what Kentucky, what Arkansas has in the presumption of 50-50. Now the burden of proof, obviously we would much rather have the Arkansas. That's probably a whole nother debate, but essentially the argument is anything that doesn't explicitly lay out 50-50 is unconstitutional. While he's That's doing right. this, I got a few questions here that popped up that I'll just quickly answer. Good. 
So first one, what about West Virginia? Is it 50-50? No, West Virginia had a bill get to the Senate Judiciary Committee this year to have 50-50. The uh, committee chair, Senator Charles Trump, stripped the bill, but West Virginia did get a win. Uh, If the judge awards less than 35% custody to either parent, they must uh, supply a facts, findings, and conclusions of law as to why they ordered less than 35%. And what happened in Arkansas? So Arkansas this year, 2021, they passed what is now the country's strongest uh, 50-50 presumption law. Uh, It is a presumption of 50-50 custody. And to rebut that presumption, to essentially say that presumption should not apply, you must provide clear and convincing evidence, which um, like what Ryan said, that would be essentially like a lot of scholars would put that like 85%. So you have to have some very strong evidence to be able to get over that presumption. All right. So now I'm going to pull up the document here. So this is an actual filing in Minnesota state courts. um, challenging the custody statute uh, from a constitutional basis. So I'll give it to you. I'll let you take it away here, Ryan. Yeah. So I don't want to bore people, but one interesting thing, and maybe we can, what we can stop after this, but one thing to note, right. Is this, is this, this subject line right here of the argument. Parenting time is a fundamental right. That's the point, right? That's the point that we're trying to tell the courts like, hello, I have to have 50% parenting time unless you can prove that I'm literally endangering my child. And if I was endangering my child, then I would be liable to criminal law for child abuse, right? So unless there's a criminal action pending, this is, this is, a, this is a, an aggressive argument. You should have 50-50 parenting time, right? Unless there's a finding of endangerment. So check this out. The question is, is and the judge will say, do you have authority for that statement? Do you have authority for the statement that parenting is a fundamental right? Well, guys, here's a long list of cases, right? The beginning of this, this paragraph, the beginning of my brief states that the Supreme Court has long asserted that the parents' rights to their kids is fundamental. Look at all these cases. Meyer versus Nebraska, 1923. 1923, right? This is almost, what is that? Almost 100 years ago. Pierce versus Society of Sisters, 1925. 1920s, we acknowledged that one of the things that we hold most dear to this country, and what's so baffling is that the family courts seem to have forgot this. The family court judges, when they take their oath and they sit up there, they, they, they uphold the Constitution of the United States, seem to have forgotten the case law outlining what exactly that means. May v. Anderson, it's all the same thing, guys. Griswold versus Connecticut, Prince versus Massachusetts, all the way down to Troxel. And the Troxel is the case that Mark and I were talking about in the beginning. It's the beautiful quote uh, that says, basically, judges don't get to step into the shoes of parents. And that's what so many folks on forums and chat rooms and Facebook pages, uh, you know, are saying is that the court just trampled me. They've isolated me. They've trampled me. And, you know, as we're looking through this document here, this, this, this case law isn't new. It's not new. 
It's not novel. It's not, it's, it's a long asserted Supreme Court history over 100 years in the making. And I think that's really important to highlight and it gets at it right in this first page and a half. This is not new. This is Supreme Court precedent. It's not, it's just, it's, it's, as they say here, the basic civil rights of man, right? So, um, can I, yeah, we're back. Cool. Um, I think that's important to emphasize, not only judge, I have a fundamental right here, um, but it's a long-standing fundamental right. And guys, Mark, we should figure out a way to get this as a PDF somewhere. I don't know how we can do that. Maybe we can host it as a link. Um, yeah, I got, I got a, uh, I'm, I'm seeing all the comments from everybody. I have a copy of it. I will, um, what I'll do is I'll work and get everything, all the names and everything redacted from that, or I'll, I guess I'll take off that first page and um, just- This is the meat of it? Yeah, just take the the actual arguments of it and we can post this um, as a resource on the Father's Rights Movement page. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Um, because people are often wondering, right? Like, okay, I know I have a constitutional right, but what does that mean? What do I do? What motion do I make? What tactic do I specifically use? And I think the thing is you have to educate the court, right? And you have to have your attorney or attorneys have the, the gumption, the cojones, whatever you want to say to make that move. And it's not that big of an investment because all you need to do is copy paste right here in every single state including the District of Columbia, this case law is good. And this case law trumps state case law. This is the United States Supreme Court talking right here. And so I think in family court, the system is broken. Um, it's like trying to play by the rules of family court will fail, right? If you're just trying to do the same old, same old, it will fail. It will fail. It has failed. So the answer has to be creativity. The card that's not being played right now is the Constitution, as far as I'm concerned. So that's why I'm interested. Um, and this, what we just talked about for the last half hour, is parenting time. We have yet to talk about um, alimony or spousal maintenance, whatever your sister calls it, but there are constitutional challenges to that, as well as child support. Um, but suffice it to say, this is what most people focus on is parenting time. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously, I think that the, uh, oh, we're about to have a, uh, a special guest hop in. You gonna hop in right now? Oh, he's ignoring us. Um, so, uh, wanna hop in right now, Casey? Jump in. If Got you're ready. ready. Oh, okay, we're welcoming uh, the Father's Rights Movement Executive Director, Casey Sowers, onto the show. Um, we got a chance to talk briefly earlier today. Um, he's come locked and loaded with uh, with some questions and I'm sure some opinions on uh, on what we're talking about tonight. Questions, questions for sure. Uh, there's a bit of, of a delay from what I was listening in on to probably where you guys are at now. So if you guys have something you're in the middle of, uh, continue, please. No, we actually just wrapped up a thought. Okay. So, so my question ahead. is, and this is probably everybody's question that will ever watch this video. If this is a constitutional thing that to me, especially as, as you're explaining it, seems very clear and concise and black and white. How have we gotten to where we're at so easily? How has this not been caught and dealt with already? 
aren't there safeguards in processing laws? That's such a great question. That is that is that is the question. What I don't I don't know I don't I can't begin to know the answer, right? Like is it legislatures favoring is it the 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 mom favoritism that kids need to be with their mom? Is it that combined with dads are working and after they split, you know, there's a the, it it unfolds into child support and spousal support with dad making the money. But the thing is is those long-standing social history stays home with the kids, has a relationship with the kids, emotionally, psychologically connected. It's, it's all started to, to disintegrate and equalize in 2021. Um, but maybe that's it, right? It's the, it's the courts and the legislature drank the cultural Kool-Aid of moms better with kids than dads. So, let's go all okay. the way back to the start. Let's go all the way back to the start of, of how this creep started. Well, you, you were talking earlier about these laws, these constitutional laws in 1928, you know, mm -hmm. as, as one of the years that I heard. 1928. What, were the, what were the custody laws, though, then? The custody laws at the time actually favored fathers. You have so to realize that there was, there was a huge switch dynamic that, that are in the dynamic around World War II and the return to that. And well, then, let me add to that. In 1948, right. a document was signed by the United Nations called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I've gone through that. I've got it up here. We can pull it up. The way the current family laws are, in my opinion at least, clearly violates five of the 30 declarations of the human rights, arguably more based on the situation. But not only is it a violation of the Constitution, a violation of human rights, which you know, we're talking about the U.S., but this is a worldwide issue. Well, let's pull it up. Mitchell just made a really good comment here. Let's start calling it what it is, human trafficking, people profiting massively from it. Let's talk about that because, Ryan, you don't know, but uh, we have because we haven't had a chance to talk yet, but I'm currently uh, in my in a doctorate program and I'm conducting a pilot uh, research project uh, for my thesis. And over the summer, we've been doing a, uh, a survey. It's got 48 questions and I've got nearly 6,000 responses. I'm looking for a hundred in each state. I've got 600 from California. I'm posting the link now in the, in the chat. And, you know, in any op the opposition that we see for any equality, I'll let you tell us. I mean, I know, I think Mark's commented on it before, but Ryan, what, I mean, what's the opposition in, trying to pass laws for equality i i, I don't want to guess that it's the local bar associations <laughs> why would you not want to guess that i mean because the my education on this is primarily from the the film divorce court right mm -hmm. 50 million dollar year industry and just like the, the cozy relationship between attorney and judges and and the massive amount of money that attorneys can make off these things. I mean, if that's what you're proposing, I think it's spot on. I, I actually don't. I, I would, that's, what I, that's what I was looking for. But let me tell you, my survey so far, comparing if you use the, Nash, uh, the uh, National Parents Organization Shared Parenting Report Card, New York State has an F, as great as an F. Arizona, which is the state that I have enough responses in to utilize to compare, has an A minus. And I will tell you that nationwide and 
between New York and Arizona, men on every single metric, mental and emotional health, uh, job self-reported job performance, they are all impacted negatively uh, and more heavily than women are. But what I found between New York and Arizona is that not only did men do better mentally and emotionally in their reporting and their job performance in Arizona, but women did too. But the most surprising part of it is, is even though their laws are more equal, according to the shared parenting report card, they reported that they spent more in court and attorney's fees than they did in New York. So the argument that they're making more money mm. by keeping laws unequal doesn't hold water. Interesting. I have a, this is a this is an off the top of my head thought. This is the second time I've heard you say that, and this just popped into my head. So I had this conversation with a client today, and his co-parent is currently unrepresented. Just found out that I'm representing him today at their mediation, um, and I had the comment. I was like, "Families, I, I see it, and I only represent men." I'm, I, I know Ryan. Ryan, you do. You, he represents both sides of of the. I only represent men. And I always tell clients when mom's unrepresented, family usually jumps in. Like rarely do I ever see family throwing big money or chipping in everything they can to help a dad foot the bill for an attorney. But it's extremely common when it comes to women. I would say especially women in their 20s, like it's mom and dad, it's aunt and uncle, it's grandparents. Everybody's throwing money. So I wonder if there's a connection between that. And I wonder, I don't know how your data is put together. Is there a separation? Well, one, I mean, you have to look. I mean, going into court, anybody, you know, and I've said this many times before, you know, if you have a good friend and he's married with kids and everything else and he comes to you and he says, you know, Lisa and I, we've been fighting. I've been staying in a hotel the past week. We're probably going to, we're probably going to get a divorce. There's, I've, I've never had anybody say anything other than one of two things are going to cross their mind. The first being, okay, they're both reasonable people. Maybe they'll be able to settle amicably or two, man, he's screwed. And the social norm is that the thinking stops there because that's the social norm. So people know, general public knows it. Men know it going into court. Well, it's like in the, investing in the stock market. You don't throw good money after bad. So you're not going to make a bad investment. P- family's not going to throw their money in when they know nothing's going to come of it. Or at least the expectation that nothing's going to come of it. Wait, so let's be clear about what you just said. You just said that Arizona, which is an A, New York. Um, a minus. A minus. Arizona has more equality in parenting time by law, but they also spend more cash dollars. They also throw more cash dollars at the attorneys. Well, think about it. If there's actually an equal fight, yeah, yeah. then it comes down to the men spend more money, which makes the women spend more money, which actually creates more of a fight. When it's when it's imbalanced, the men be like, "Well, I lost," but Whoa. what they do is they end up paying probably more in child support. So maybe it's Title Four D. Maybe that's the the unseen thing there because I did not measure that. Let me plug you. Let me plug your study here so we can get anybody who has not filled it out. I just dropped it in the chat on YouTube and Facebook for a second time. It's the link that's pulled up on the screen right now. So if you have not filled out that survey. Um, Casey is still looking for a lot of people from a lot of different states. That is a long 
thing to copy down if you're looking at the screen. But if you go to uh, the Father's Rights Movement on Facebook, it is pinned to the top of the page. And you can just also on it. LinkedIn. That's where that one's come yes. from. You should, you should be able to just click the link in the comments though. It's in there twice. So that, that thesis is pretty interesting. Okay. So like, I, I want to separate this for people who are watching. I, thought, I don't think, so that's separate and distinct from, well, let me tell you the thesis question first. Yeah. So there's 48, 48 questions in there, but what I'm measuring is what is the impact to corporations? And there's a very specific reason why, I, I did that. And, you know, I've had a lot of uh, comments on my survey. Well, who, who the hell cares about, you know, corporations? What about the kids? Well, yes, I completely agree. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. But the general public, us outside of their kids and maybe their close family, they really don't care. So, you know, everybody's seen the little cartoon where Jimmy is asking the, the Constitution, well, how does the bill get passed? Well, Corporations decide that they want something passed and they pay a bunch of money to get it happen. Right. So if we can tie and make that value proposition that inequality in the family court system is causing or taking money out of the corporation's pockets, it's going to be in their best interest to change how they, you know, uh, use their lobbying money, who they fund for campaigns. And it also changes the, the pr value proposition to politicians and legislators to vote for equal share parenting because that's who's paying their, their money, the corporations that want it that way. Interesting, dude. Wow. That's fantastic. So the proposition is that attorneys need not worry that with the 50, 50 state, they'll be out of a job. In fact, they'll have more work. Correct. Interesting. Interesting. It's so what are your findings with respect to corporate health and 50 50 states like corporate corporate earnings Every, well i haven't quantified it yet this is a public study but my goal is to quantify it into um a, a dollar amount per employee right now what i'm doing you know as the pilot study uh is just measuring that there is an impact you know establishing that there is an impact a uh, a modifier and a moderator um from the the family court or, or court um, specifics on whether or not, you know, well, what did they want when they went into the custody, you know, uh, thing 50, 50, did they want hundred percent? Did they have a guardian ad litem? How long did it take? How long, how far do they live from the other parent? You know, because if they're in California, Miami, obviously that's not going to be a 50, 50 situation. There's a lot of variables that I tried to account for, but if they're like, you know, my case, I'm within two miles of my, 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 uh, you know, daughter's mother. So that's not a variable as much. Mm -hmm. Um, and then one other thing that I got, well, what did you want when you get, when you went into the court situation and what did you end up getting? Did you get it via a, a agreement by both parties or did you get it by uh, judge's order? Mm -hmm. You know, and there's a stark difference. Yeah. And I'll tell you that um, going into it, I think an overwhelming 48% of men are reporting that they went into it wanting 50-50. Only, I think at most, a 2% of men wanted 100%. Whereas the majority, women, 26 to 28%, went in wanting 100%. And only 22 to 23% went in wanting 50%. I believe that. 
I have one client that came in my office at like that I currently have that came in asking for 100% and majority of them just say, I want what's fair. I want equal. I want 50, 50. So I, I, I very much believe that because it seems like every single either petition or response, the mom's asking for at minimum 75%. Yep. And I will tell you that the, the statistics, while those are the, the highest reported, um, you know, or highest number of responses, the sprinklings of everything in, in between on men range from what they got from zero to 50%, whereas women it's 50 to 100%, with I think 13% of women getting 100%, whereas men it's reported what they ended up with was zero uh, for 100%. So going in wanting 100%, they're, they're more likely to get it. But that also is you know due to the way the current state laws are written. So th this just kind of popped into my head too. We were talking through, oh, looks like we, we lost, lost Ryan. Um, so that was gonna be a question for him. But um, what popped into my head is we when we go back to, when we, and Casey, you and I have talked about this at, at nauseum at this point. Oh, he's back. Um, all right, we're back. Um, so uh, Ryan, this thought popped into my head. So yeah. we had, so up until the 1940s, we'll call it custody laws favored fathers actually. And a lot of that case law came out in the twenties, which what else happened in the 1920s, 1920 the women got the right to vote. So I'd be curious and I haven't read those cases. Um, are the, what, what are, are some of those cases involving women gaining rights or are they men? Is it a mixture? So the earliest case that we reference is the 1923 case, Meyer versus Nebraska. Um, and I don't know the gender disparity of that, the gender element of that case. Um, it's more a focus on the family itself as a unit. Um, it's more this, it's more in this th first three cases cited it's less mom deserves more parenting time than dad versus and i actually think the the parties who benefit in those three cases are the fathers if i recall correctly in all three of those first three cases but the mm -hmm. logic is not about dad or mom the logic is about state interference with the family right those three cases specifically is the state this the state has an incredibly high burden before it puts its fingers in the sacredness and it's this language about the family being and the parents like the parents relationship to their kids is they don't use the word holy but that is kind of what they're implying right it's like it can't be it can't be meddled with um it can't willy-nilly so but 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 mark that's not to answer your question i, I have no idea about the the gender history and what's yeah, going that, on. that was just kind of a a a, a one-off thought there that maybe that had something to do with the, the suffrage movement and the gaining of rights or the, the strengthening or equality in between men and women in general in society so i think the basic point is like if you're let's say you're a father watching this right now what what can you use right like what can you steal and tell and text like grab your phone and text your attorney right now um one thing might be like hey man or hey attorney don't worry if there's 50 50 parenting time you'll still have a job i mean that's a really really interesting point that casey made uh, like for me I, I i subscribe to the narrative 
that the bar association is guilty, that the attorneys are guilty, because, but they generally do oppose 50-50 parenting, at least in Minnesota. The bar association and the family bar is opposed to 50-50 parenting time because they don't think it, it's for the best interest of the kids. Which blows my mind because the research that was Arkansas. Those were the two biggest uh, units that opposed their bill were the Bar Association and the Judges Association. So I think that's that's pretty across the board that those two groups are going to uh, are, are going to go to bat to keep things status quo. But maybe Casey's point is that they're mistaken. Like they themselves are mistaken. So let me explain to you my my thought process on on how to how to approach this and where we're going as a strategy with the father's rights movement is, you know, I spent 14 years in the army, you know, so military intelligence and things like that. And for me, uh, you know, trying to pass legislation at the state level is the front line and it's absolutely needed. I mean, it's not something we should stop doing. It's absolutely needed. However, you know, the the groups that we that, that moved to block us, whether it be the um, uh, women's groups or whether it be anybody else, they're better funded. They have more, they're more organized than, you know, what we've been trying to do, which unfortunately the shared parenting community is very fragmented. You know, one of my primary goals is bringing that together so we can speak as one, but that's the front line. And when you're outgunned and outnumbered and outmanned in every facet, what do you do? In, in, in warfare, well, you switch to guerrilla tactics. So you attack their supply lines. What are their supply lines? Supply lines are money, money from corporations that go to politicians that vote the way that they want them to. So that's why I'm trying to make this value proposition. If we can show corporations they're losing money on this, well, we've interrupted their supply lines. Okay. Um, and that's, you know, the direction we're heading with this along with, let me read you, um, you know, if, if, this is conflicting with the Constitution. The United Nations, which takes this global, because this is a global issue, and that's you know the level I'm looking at it. Article 12 of the um, Declaration of, of Human Rights. Article 12, uh, you know, if it's if it's in conflict with the Constitution, that makes it arbitrary. And Article 12 here of the of the UN document says no one shall be subject to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family, home or court correspondence, nor to attacks upon his honor or reputation. Everyone has the right to protection of the law, such interference or attacks. So to me, that means that the family court system, that's exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They're arbitrarily intervening in the family and making attacks against people that are unwarranted and making decisions, arbitrary decisions based on that as that, well, they, they call it judge's discretion, but the same exact case between Miami, Minnesota, and California will all have different judges discretion. So that means it's not a discretion because there is no definition to that. It's bias. Yeah. Based on that individual judge, their experiences, their culture, and their education and, and, you know, a dozen other things. So your, so to the dads who are watching or the moms, whatever, your strategy of cut off their supply lines, that's a semi long-term strategy, right? Yes. It, 
Yes. Yeah. It's like a, 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 a mission. It's, it's not a long game. Yeah. And, and that's look, really the way that I see it. And, and, and at the risk of offending anybody that ever watches this show, you know, I told you about the story about, you know, you have a friend, he's married, he's getting, he's in the hotel, he's getting separated. And you, you have one of two thoughts to put that into perspective. This is where we are at in history right now. Okay. Close your eyes. Imagine it's 1950. You're on a bus. The bus pulls over and a black man gets on. Where does he sit? Everybody knows the answer to that question. And that at the time, that was a social norm, whether people agreed with it or not. That's just the way it was right now. This is just the way it is. And I truly believe it is inevitable that that will change. And in 50 years from now, there will be history books about this evolution of humanity and equality and that this is the human rights issue of the 21st century. And it's inevitable. I mean, it, ha it, it just has to. I think that's great. I think that last 60 seconds, you know, I, I could feel like, yeah, that's right. I think those are the words of encouragement that people who are bogged down need to hear every single day, right? Is that like, I think that's what you guys do such a great job of is just getting that perspective that A, you're not alone, B, you're on the right side of history, C, hang in there, D, we're all working together, and here's some tools. And our goal is we're going to brand it exactly as it is. We're going to call it, what, what you know, a horse, a horse, a duck, a duck. And yeah. with the United Nations, the strategy is that for politicians and legislators, when they go to vote for a bill or against a bill, it's going to be a decision of, well, am I voting for equality or am I voting for continued violation of human rights? And that's going to determine their political careers. Completely agree. Completely agree. The minute, the minute legislators start realizing that how far this movement has come in the last 10 years and what it's going to become. And they're going to be branded as the individuals who voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1965, that voted against the legislation in the 1920s, that voted against ending slavery. The minute they start realizing that they're going to be like those individuals or more recently, the more recent one, gay marriage. That happened in the Supreme Court, so it's a little bit different. But as soon as these individuals in power start realizing that that's who they're going to be compared to, that's when I think the change will will happen will will start to happen more rapidly. And you know that's the great thing is just equality is just it's equal. You know it's there's no well you know if equal is equal, situationally dependent. I understand, but rebuttable presumption of 50 50 you start there and then justify one way or another and 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 there are situations that it's not going to help everybody you know um, from the silver bullet uh to lots of other things you know they're going to have to start looking at some of the cases a lot a lot more closely and i think we, we have to keep in perspective that all of these issues we've talked about whether it be challenging the constitutionality whether it be uh changing the laws through legislation, um, whether it be last Thursday, Brian and I talked about some of it is no matter what you do on those fronts, there are going to be those judges who just don't do anything. Um, mm -hmm. There are going to be the biases are going to remain in the system. So it's not just one, one or one's more important than the other. It's going to take all of these things to get true equality in the 
family law courts or whatever may come after family law courts as, as things evolve and change. So I, I wanted to say one more thing too about the constitutional about the constitutional attacks to state statutes. I think like we're, we're thinking about what are impediments that we can take away from people, right? If there's friction, if there's cost, if there's technical, like, philosophical understanding of this, what can we do to help people? I mean, the brief is up. I'd say 97% of the brief is copy and pasteable and applies to all all 50 states, right? So if you're if you're in the two states that already have 50% parenting time, great, wonderful, you don't have to worry about it. But if you're in other states, right, copy, paste, put in your state statute and run with it. And your attorney, the only thing you need is an attorney who will file it, right? Who's, yeah. who's down with the equality. Well, we'll pop this up here. This was a question and a comment more that, that came across um, from, from Tom. Uh, and Tom's in, in North Carolina. Have the well, let, me, let me add a question to that that might answer his question. Okay. So, so I've had a chance to, I, I get to know Tom, please consider a lot of dads can't afford lawyers and have no choice, uh, but to be pro se. Turn over well, let, me, let, let me first clarify, you know, a lot of people contact the father's rights movement and they say, Hey, you know, I'm in this situation. I need help finding an attorney. I need, uh, help with this or that. And, and, you know, it breaks our hearts because we get messages I'm numerous every day. Unfortunately, the father's rights movement, that's not exactly what we're designed for. What we're designed for is to address the, the issue on a national and global level and, and develop systems for systematic change. You know, so trying to or design, setting up to try and help out each individual case is like trying to put out a wildfire, wildfire with a bucket of, you know, a bucket of water. It's not going to happen. We're trying to do airdrops of what we're trying to do. So we're trying to, you know, educate the public. We're trying to, I'm, I'm writing a, uh, an application for a grant for the United Nations to get funding to develop more programs. Okay. Um, that's first thing as I want, because a lot of people do contact us that are trying to do pro se or whatnot. That's why we started, you know, Mark, you know, why I brought to you about starting this is to help educate the public, you know, each state so they can know the nuances and what they can and can't do. And we want to expound on this. But my question that might answer his question, and this is for Ryan and Mark. I'm not an attorney, so I don't know the answer to this. But something that's been kind of floating around in my mind for a year now. If this is a constitutional issue, if so many people are affected by it. Is this an opportunity for a class action lawsuit at the federal level that would make it illegal in the states to have anything less than 50 50. Is it a, is it a, is it a constitutional issue? Is it a class action at a federal level for all the states who have less than if we had a million people, more than a million people. Actually, there's 44.7 million custodial parents nationwide right now. OK, and the statistics of how many of those are women versus men. Now, I'm not just saying that we're only advocating for father's rights. This is for equality. So we do have many women and, and women, uh, mothers that come to us looking for help as well. So is this an opportunity for parents that are, you know, just being sucked dry by the system to invoke, a, you know, or, you know, start a class action lawsuit 
on a constitutional violation? I think the answer is I think the answer is yes. Um, do I have the case law right now at the fingertips to support that and has been done? Do I have precedent? No. Um, but I, I don't care if it's been done. Let me let me let me tell you something about me. When I was in the military, my I had a crusty old. He was probably sixty five. He shouldn't have been in the army anymore. And uh, my replacement when I was in Afghanistan came to him and he was all upset about something that I had done. And my supply sergeant told him, he goes, what you got to understand about Lieutenant Sowers is, is he kills flies with sledgehammers. <laughs> that's what I do. So, you know, it's go big or go home. And yeah. my job as executive director for the Father's Rights Movement, and, and I make no mistake about it, this is my only goal is to work myself out of a job so that the I don't the father's rights movement doesn't need me and the father's rights movement doesn't need to exist anymore because this isn't an issue. That's my goal. Yeah. I like my that. first reaction is nationally. I think there would be some hurdles in, in terms of certifying a class of individuals, but I think there potentially be a bit of a stretch but it's something that potentially could be pushed on a state by state basis because of the difference in laws and the difference in treatment. I think it may be hard to get a, a national class certified. That'd be my first thought. I disagree. I think that the similarities are so striking and they're so basic, right? Like if you, there's 48 States right now without 50, 50 parenting time presumption. That's the legal similarity under the color of law, the similarity of 42 USC 1983, right? Everybody's getting screwed out of their constitutional rights. Doesn't matter. Basically, that's the only fact that matters, right? We're in a state that's screwing us out of our constitutional parenting time, right? We're a class. Doesn't matter gender, age, whatever, represented, not. Like force the Supreme Court to hear the issue. Force the court to certify the class. Get the press to cover it. They I'm looking at a set of precedents that will that will you know flow over into everything else and and really exact change. I I I mean, you guys heard the news about the respondent just came out. There's there's you know there's a couple of celebrities every month that make headlines for their their cases. Yeah. I mean, it's there, right? It's just dry kindling waiting for someone just to. The only thing is, is it nobody pays attention to it or even cares until it affects them. And it comes out of the blue when it does. Yeah. And I, I we just, actually had, we had Greg Ellis on the show about a month ago. So yeah, I'm very, actually I, I got the book. I think it's a great question. I think, I mean, Mark, you're probably right in terms of what are the ins and outs and the nuts and bolts of certifying a class. I tend to be super aggressive. Right. And just if you know it's right, then it's like the bus thing. They didn't have the roadmap in when they were when 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 they were doing the civil rights movement. And right. They just knew that they were right. Right. But they set the roadmap for us because, uh, you know, men, uh, fathers, black, white, Latino, speaking English, speaking Spanish, speaking. Uh, oh, who was it that, that uh, uh, from Albania? Uh, we've had people from India contact us. Uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, we're all fathers. And if we can make that change here in the US, it'll be the first domino to affecting change everywhere else. Couldn't I like agree it. more. 
I want I want to go back to to another thing too because I think it's something that Ryan probably runs into being on social media and using that, and, and I do as well too. Casey, you mentioned the Father's Rights Movement, not necessarily designed for legal advice or anything like that. Um, it's really really challenging. I'll tell you, I probably receive twenty five emails, texts, DMs a day from people, oh, I got a quick question. The biggest challenge in that is nothing in family law is a quick question because it involves the most important things in your life. Mm -hmm. A quick and, question, you enact whatever advice you're given and it only leads to another quick question because the other side is doing the same exact thing. Yeah, so it gets They're to be- adapting it, to however they can. It gets to be extremely challenging like, do you and and I'm sure Ryan does the same thing. I I take I always keep X number of pro se cases that I I I usually charge a little bit up front so they're invested, and then I don't charge anything else to them. We see their case all the way through. So when when even I, I've been in your shoes. I've been the dad who didn't know what was going on. Um, it, it, there's, I don't know what the good answer is. And, and Casey, you and I know have had conversations about like what the answer could be. How could we solve that? And, and the more I, more I dive into it, I think it's fixing the system is the solve for that because at the end of the day, there's never going to be enough minutes and hours in the day for me to, I wouldn't have enough minutes in the day to just respond to all those DMs. So it's, no, and exactly. it's not that I'm I mean, ignoring you. As I an organization, we struggle with that. As, as an yeah. organization, we struggle with being able to do that. And, and so I, I think the answer or the solution to that is if we create, we enact these changes and it, as each state gets better and better, which, I mean, we've seen this year, it was six states ultimately ended up improving their, their custody laws whether it be facts, findings, and conclusions of law, whether it be the 50-50 or, or the increased minimums in West Virginia and Texas. Um, but as we get better, there'll be fewer and fewer of those issues because it, it's going to get closer and closer to, unless there's an actual serious verifiable issue, um, then you won't need, you, you won't need advice because they're going to have to prove otherwise. Lar the larger the sample size, the closer to the mean you're going to get. And with that, you know, I want to talk about a little bit about, and before I got to where I'm doing with my thesis, you know, I, I had a, a large interest in legal analytics and I said, well, you know, why don't we just sue the state to do that? And they're going to come back and say, oh, who's going to pay for it? You know, all that, well, we need this, we need that. And it's going to take years to implement. And as I understand it in Florida, um, technically you can do that. You have to go through a huge rigmarole to get to it, but nobody's ever successfully gotten all the way to being able to do that. And then they have to go through each individual file and add up everything themselves. So on, you know, uh, the Father of the Rice Movement website, if you go to uh, one of the tabs, we have a survey there and we have some statistics. So I said, well, rather than, you know, suing the states to invoke uh, and start conducting legal analytics and reporting, why don't we just start doing it? and leave it on them to start doing analytics to rebut it. 
Hey, I, I want to continue this thought, but Ryan does have a hard out. So okay. I want to thank him. And then after that, Casey, you and I can uh, continue this. But Ryan, thank you for coming on again. Um, the viewers love you. I think what you're doing is amazing. And um, I think it's something that can be replicated across this country and really make an impact. So thank you again for coming on. Thanks, and I can, see that, I can see that you've got your wheels turning with a, a few of those things. And, uh, you know, I messaged you on, on Facebook so, or Messenger. So we'll be, I'll be in touch and we'll talk. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. We'll see you soon. Talk to you soon. Ciao. So, Casey, I think that's a fantastic. So one of the things, um, and actually, uh, Don Huben actually did something. Ohio has a weird law. Ohio goes county by county in terms of their temporary right. orders. And so Don was able to essentially collect a sample of like what the temporary order looked like, because that's a driving factor. Anybody that's been in family court knows that's a driving factor of that final order is that temp order. Um, the biggest issue you run into a lot of states is the fact that in California, if it involves a minor, it's sealed. And there's only right. a limited number of parties who can um, see that data. I would love as an attorney, as to see what the uh, judges are supposed to call balls and strikes. I would love to see what their percentages are. Like, I would love to see that statistical breakdown of like, okay, they grant 64% of custody to mom, or they grant 54% of custody to mom or 78. Now when you say they, who are you referring to? The judge. I would love so to see a judge by judge breakdown where there has to be some sort of reporting and accountability to where if you're at 80% of custody goes to mom and, and you'd have to break it down more nuanced, you would have to break it down like what came as a stipulated agreement. And yep. there's even issues with that. And then what the judge decided on their own. Um, yep. And it, it can go to really everybody in the system. I'm, I'm very public on here on, on really any show I go on this show, um, any podcast I do, I hate third parties involved in cases. I think a lot of times it's a cop out of the judge, but I would love to see evaluators or therapists. Like what are they, when they make those recommendations in California, I'm sitting in Riverside County, California. If you request an order, you go to what's called CCRC, child custody recommending counseling. And in CCRC, they actually will make a recommendation to the judge. I would love to see the ball strike percentage of, of those counselors. So that was where, my question where is this equity I, coming from? when I created the survey on the website is, you know, say a state does, does invoke 50, 50, you know, Florida's laws are written to the point where it says everything, but 50, 50. I mean, it's pretty, pretty, you know, clear and concise. Um, mm -hmm. But even say Kentucky, you know, it still comes down to judge's discretion. So that judge's discretion, if the state law says 50, 50, well, what are the judges actually, you know, putting out? You know, if if 98% of the judges are putting out somewhere, you know, in the range of that 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 arc, uh, you know, they're in the 50, you know, 55 to 45 range, but then you got one judge sitting out here, 75, 80, 90. Well, is that judge's discretion or is that bias at that point? You yeah, know, well, I mean, here's uh, I want to pull the point up because exactly. I have. I've seen this and this is something like everybody, like you mentioned in Florida, oh, it's so much work. It's this, it's that. We have the technology. And, and I can say that I read an article in the American Bar Association family law section. 
And we have technology coming down the chute that's going to be able to essentially put cases in baskets the minute they're filed. So it's not something that we don't have the technology for. It's not something that we're not capable of doing. And I don't even necessarily think it's because there are bad, there is many, there are bad actors in the system, but there, I don't think there are as many as we think they are. It's just simply human beings. Judges and lawyers are humans. Um, and like, it's a hard I, call. The, it's a hard call to make. Absolutely. This is the question Absolutely. I posed. It's like, oh, we don't want cameras. Like sometimes it's, we don't want cameras in courtrooms. We don't need this. We need this sealed. Well, I, take it this way. If you're, if you're walking down the street and somebody starts shoving a, a camera in your face, like, even the celebrities are uncomfortable by that. That's essentially, that's the equivalent of what we're asking for from the judges. Now, hopefully it becomes something that is expected. Like, hey, we're going to know the percentage of custody you give to moms and you give to dads. We're going to know the percentage of domestic violence restraining orders you grant. Like that stuff should be public information because those public officials need to be held accountable. So I just want to bring that up because it's something that we're capable of doing. Especially a lot since a lot of them are, are, are voted in. Yeah. Uh, and I want to put up uh, this one. So can't cloud AI speed up uh, or an uh, anal- analysis? And so the issue is, is a lot of these, while even if they're in the system, one, getting access to them, and two, uh, a lot of them are redacted. You know, it's so in Florida, that's the issue is you have to get in and you have to go one by one and actually pull out that information. Yes, AI could do it, but the state's what benefit to them does it provide? If anything, it creates them more problems. So why are they going to allow access or even, you know, set up things to promote that people to coming in and do it? One, also because it involves minors, it's going to be an even bigger issue. They're not going to want a third party coming in and doing anything unless they're under some type of special contract because they can't do it themselves. Well, here's the uh, thing. We can strip, we can strip the personal data. We should be able to collect data points. That, that's they should the be, thing. But, but nobody's recording that into a system where it can really be collected. And that's what I wanted to. And that's where I started to come up with class action lawsuits that for the states just to, you know, put in the basics and we can analyze it. But like I said, it's not in their best interest to do that because it's going to open a whole can of worms, especially yeah. for the bar associations. So I'll pull this up. Tom's got a question here. So question from left field. Why can't we go back to the actual first case that shows that the entire child custody and child support was made from a falsehood? Why can't we go back to the domestic uh, protective order filing and hearing, show evidence of lying and false statements uh, to prove the mother's taking advantage of and using the system? So more of a legal question. This is a state by state thing. Um, Certain states have things on the books that would allow you um, to modify or adjust this. Um, there are other states like Texas. I, I had uh, Cassandra Daniels on probably about six, eight weeks ago. And in Texas, they'll go back after the, if they can charge you money, they'll go back four years. It doesn't matter when the case was filed, doesn't matter anything. So this is a state by state thing. And it is a very kind of precarious issue because domestic violence in some instances is a serious issue and it's a very gray area issue. So you're never going to get a law or a statute that disincentivizes um, legitimate reporting of domestic violence. Um, that, that's a big challenge. I, I talk I over, say, and over And I found this out recently that, that Florida, it is a third degree felony to make a false 
uh, allegation, a report, you know, report a false allegation, uh, specifically in use for gaining uh, advantage in custody. The problem is, is even if they do, it's upon the police or the judge to pursue any criminal violation. Um, the other party, the, the, the victim of that allegation, there's nothing that they can do other I mean, they can provide evidence, but at that point it becomes a, a criminal offense and it's upon the, the police or the judge to pursue that. At that point, they're like, well, really is it in the child's best interest to put the other parent in jail when we were looking at putting one parent in jail or should we just try and get things to smooth over? And you have to realize when you jump from family court to criminal court, um, what is the burden of proof? A DA is not going to take on a case because a lot of states have laws on the books like you mentioned, whether it be false police reports or different laws around perjury or just lying to um, lying under oath. Uh, but you jump from preponderance of the evidence in most cases in family court to beyond reasonable doubt. And there's really not much that'll ever get proven in family court beyond reasonable doubt. It most of the time happens between two people in the confines of their home. And it's almost impossible short of black eyes, blood, something like yeah, that. Word against her, yours and yeah, everything else. And, and it's hard to tell anything factual out of just two people that I mean, it's complete chaos. Yeah. And I'll kind of, I'll kind of, tack onto this. So note the DVPO was dismissed with prejudice. Um, the, the, the issue is going to go, it's just always going to go back to you're operating in a gray area and it's very, very easy for legislators to vote for what, the, what is marketed as a stronger domestic violence law than it is for one that operates and does what you want it to do. I like Chris's answer here is in order to pursue that you have to, um, prove perjury. So how do you prove that the statement that the allegation they made is false when they were operating on a belief? Well, my child told me this. So I thought this. It's reasonable doubt. Yeah, you see attorney, attorneys do that all the time. It is my understanding um, mm -hmm. or or I have been told they, they there's anything like that can prevent you from getting to that. that it's going to be impossible to pin them down. Um, I've seen an attorney in court, their client fled the state and they told the judge on, on a court date, oh, I don't know where my client's at. Two days later, they were like, they were, oh, well, they're, they're in state X. Um, Your honor, I have an email that shows that he sent me saying their client was going to go to this state. And I, and I said, we wouldn't agree to that. And the judge just kind of shrugged. Um, so that like stuff like that happens too, where it's like you have the evidence, but the judge just doesn't want to deal with it, which shouldn't be the case, but it happens. Yep. Anybody else? We'll take, we'll tell you another question or two. If you, uh, um, let me find one here. I know we got a bunch up here. Drops, drop your questions, Casey, and I'll take one or two more here. Big backup. We got a lot of comments in here in yeah. this, on this show. So, okay, here's a good one, I think, because I, I kind of made a reference to it. When talking about cutting off the supply lines, when I was mentioning earlier, where's the Title IV-D discussion? 
And so that's, if we can get rebuttable presumption of 50-50 um, parenting in each state, I, I, I really believe that, um, you know, child uh, support and things like that will, it won't be perfect and it won't definitely won't be resolved, but it will be a step, a huge step in the right direction. So if we can make corporations realize they're losing money and this is affecting the, the economy, United States economy, it's going to be in their best interest to lobby for equal laws, at least in shared parenting, reduce, uh, you know, improve uh, emotional and mental health, improves job performance production, reduce risk and safety at work because of distraction or lack of sleep. If we can get there, that's a follow on. So um, Title 4D, but here's the thing with Title 4D or even what we were talking about with the attorneys, you know, the bar associate, well, you know, we've got all these attorneys in the state that we have to think about their livelihood. This is their job, their career. So we have to make sure the laws stay the way they are so they can, you know, we can, all these people can feed their families. They're going to fight tooth and nail. Absolutely. Unless there is something to replace that. So say in, in Arizona, and I don't know, maybe that increased uh, amount for, um, attorney's fees and court costs is through mediation. So those family attorneys that are doing things in the court system and, and create, making things very divisive, maybe they can switch to mediation rather than- I'm divorce. a big proponent of that. I always tell people when, how, how do we fix the system? We make it more collaborative on the front end. Right. Because- so title, The Title 40, I don't know what the, the what's going to fill that vacuum. The states, if they're, you know, if they're profiting off this and they need this, we're going to have to create something that's in their going to be in their interest to say, okay, well, we have to switch from Title 40 to doing this. Ultimately, here's the answer to that. That money's still going to be there. The federal government's still going to have that money. It's just going to have to determine a different way to allocate those funds to the states to be able to operate um, whatever the states are utilizing that. Part of it's the child support enforcement. Part of it's the family courts. You know what? which in theory you wouldn't need as much of. If the economy, if you put the economy first in corporations, incentivize the states to do 50-50 shared parenting and they get money for each 50-50, uh, you know, judgment or agreement that, that there, you know, happens through the family court system, uh, which is better, better for mental and emotional health and uh, job performance and production production, maybe that stimulates the economy enough to uh, warrant it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right, guys. So uh, we have been here for almost an hour and 20 minutes. I know my, my heart out supposed to be about an hour and five, but um, we were on that. a little bit of a hot streak there. So once again, want to thank Ryan for coming on. Um, and also uh, the second half here, the second two thirds of it for Casey hopping on and talking about his research and um, asking some questions and having great discussion there. Um, I will be back for regularly scheduled show on Thursday. Um, so look for that. This won't be the only show this week. Um, you'll have Nick tomorrow and then you'll have uh, Kenneth on Wednesday. I'll be on my regularly scheduled Thursday. So Casey, once again, thanks for hopping on and we'll see everybody on Thursday. Thank you, sir.